Hi everyone and welcome to the European Startup Show where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. My guest today is Javier De La Torre, who is the founder and chief strategy officer of Carto, a company considered today as one of the pioneers in location intelligence field. He co-founded Carto in 2012 to enable organizations to use spatial data and analysis for more efficient delivery routes, better behavioral marketing, strategic store placements, and much more. Backed by leading VC firms like Axel Partners, Salesforce Ventures, and Early Bird Ventures, Carto has grown from a groundbreaking idea into one of the fastest growing geospatial companies in the world today, with offices in New York City, Madrid, Seville, and Washington, D.C. Carto has a team of 150 employees, a portfolio of 1,200 customers, including Vodafone, MasterCard, BCG, New York City, and Google, and more than 350,000 users around the globe. Carto has been regularly featured and recognized by Gartner and Forrester for its innovation in the location intelligence space. That was a long, but I think well-deserved introduction. I'd like to welcome Javier to the show today. Thank you very much. That was a pretty nice introduction. Thank you. <laughs> so, Javier, I wanted to start off the show. I was looking at your LinkedIn profile and I saw that you were actually a conservation scientist. So I wanted to start off by asking you about your personal journey. How did you go from being a conservation scientist, applying data sharing technologies to analyze endangered species, to then going and co-founding CARTO? Sure. It's been quite a journey, as you can imagine, a pretty exciting one. So, so my background is actually on more specifically even in what we call biodiversity informatics. So I've always been fascinated about nature and species and you know, all, everything around biology. So that's actually my background. And uh, yeah, and I used to be a scientist. I work on, in botanical gardens, natural history museums, working on analyzing the location of a species, Right. So that's actually where I got, you know, where I learned also a lot around spatial analysis and geo and mapping and all these type of things. So, so I work a lot in figuring out where endangered species are, how they're going to get affected by climate change. And all those analysis actually is what we call now location intelligence. And it's pretty much the same trying to find where an endangered species is to where a customer is. So, so in 2000 and I think, well, now like 2009 more or less decided to to get out of the scientific track and start working more on this, you know, like as an, as an analyst. And, you know, and essentially, I mean, what we found and what I found at the time was that the, the tools that were available for doing this type of analysis were just not very good. And so I first started creating our own, my own tools, and then those tools become more like a framework. And then eventually we say like, you know what, maybe, maybe the, we can actually bring a new product to the market that will help others in you know, working with the spatial data. And that's pretty much how I got from, from one place to another. Did you do any sort of market analysis? Did you go and speak to like, people to see if there's a demand? Or did you just say, I needed it and I, I don't see any tools and I'm just going to mm. build it and then see what happens? In full honest, not too much. I, I mean, by looking back, I mean, probably I mean, most of the analysis that we did was like, uh, we, uh, I was an expert already on that domain, so I knew what products existed. You know, I knew already what was the competition, and and you know, like, and I've struggled using those products. Mm-hmm. So, so I had that experience myself. I knew by uh, talking with colleagues that you know, like some technology, especially 
working with a few, with a little bit of, I mean, making maps with a little bit of data is, is not too hard. But if you want to really work with very large amounts of data, then it's really hard. It was really, really hard. So, so I knew there was a lot of people, you know, like a lot of organizations with that challenge. And my intuition was that data was only going to grow and the technology wasn't ready for that scale in terms of data. So, so that was it. Uh, obviously, then when we went more serious to Cali, we go and raise money from venture capital and so on. We did actually, Cali did more market analysis towards, you know, not only is this product needed, but it's more that is the market big enough for a customer, for a company like ours? You know, how big is the industry that we're operating in? So on. Yeah, then we went definitely analytical. But at the beginning, it was more like we built the product that we wanted to use and that we knew people wanted to use. So, hmm. And so, and when, did you have the product when you went for VC funding or did you have products with users when you went for VC funding or did you get one customer who funded your development and then you sort of developed your product for that customer? What was the route before you went for your funding? Yeah, in our case, it was quite a bit of bootstrapping. So, so before actually kind of like building the, the product company, we were a consulting firm, which is a very classical background for, uh, for a lot of entrepreneurs like ours. So I, I was a consultant working for international organizations around environmental challenges. And it was during that consulting that I developed some frameworks that then later become, became the product, right? So, so that meant that by the time that uh, we were thinking around the product, we had already some customers engaged on helping us to develop it. So by the time that we went to look for funding, we already had customers, we've already tested quite a bit of things. And, and that was, I mean, personally, I, I really liked that approach. So, so yeah, I mean, okay. it's obviously, I would say, you know, like the European, back in the days, I mean, we talked about like 2000 and between 2012, in 2014, when we, we call it, we started our racing. Uh, it wasn't that easy for European companies to access capital. So we had, I believe we had to demonstrate much more back in the days. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting to hear. Okay, so um, moving track a little bit, I've actually been avoiding asking about COVID-19 to most of my guests because it seems like everyone's starting off asking, how are you doing? How is the remote situation yeah. going? But actually, I think in this case, it merits that conversation because I know Carto is involved in a big way in helping governments around the world look at the data around the virus and the spread using your technology. So could you maybe give a really short intro on what Carto does and then talk a little bit about how you're helping governments today with this crisis? Sure. So, well, I mean, like, let me start by saying that, you know, like, this is a very interesting times for us because I like to say that there's never been a more important time to geography. I think the society is kind of awakening you know, to the importance of understanding location, right, for uh, some obvious reasons. So since, uh, since, you know, the outbreak, we started at Carto, we, we started with a program to provide our, our product for free to anybody that was working on projects to fight it. So, and that program has been going really well. We got 140 grantees, you know, like more than 40. So like governments using our product for different things. So, so it's, it's really fulfilling. A few things, you know, to, to explain it. At the core of what we do is what we call location intelligence. A very, very easy way for us to explain is, is it's about understanding the difference between where and knowing why. So if you put in a map, and all of us have seen like a lot of maps around, you know, like the spread of COVID-19, of coronavirus, right? But if you want, that, that's one thing that helps you to see where things happen. But if you want to understand 
why they happen somewhere more than in others, what are the factors, what is the vulnerabilities, then you need to create what we call a space of models. You need to correlate you know, where the cases are with other forms of data, things like demographics, mobility, all those data that maybe helps to explain why the outbreak is more happening in one place to another. And once you understand that, you can then you know, like take decisions. Right. So you can, you know, decide like in most countries, you know, to, to stop mobility, impose certain restrictions, you know, like block uh, transfer between different areas. So, so that's at the core what we do. So it's, it's very, very relevant, right? Our, our products for doing these things. Some of, um, some governments have used it, you know, for like a lot of those dashboards that you see around the evolution of the uh, pandemic, but also calculating KPIs. Like in many countries in Europe, there's this semaphore system when a region like Madrid can move to the next phase of unlocking, right? Mm-hmm. The economy. So, so in order to calculate a lot of these things, you need an location intelligence platform like ours, and they're using us for that. Other things that, you know, like uh, we, we, we are using a lot is for things like mobility analysis. Are the restrictions imposed by governments actually being helpful? Are they being actually followed by, by citizens? All those things can be monitored through analysis of spatial data. And our platform is used for a lot of things. Then obviously there's many other more practical things, like uh, uh, this pandemic is producing a lot of vulnerabilities, a lot of you know, like needs from people, you know, like from food to medical, you know, like from mm-hmm. many different things. So uh, there's many organizations using Carto to call like, the, so the distribution of you know, things like uh, food or your know, masks and things like that, right? Oh, wow. So there's a, lot, okay. there's a lot of logistics associated with COVID-19 that Carto is also used for. So I'm, I'm thinking about this and, you know, I know that we generally talk about privacy a lot and yep. Europe is definitely a lot more conscious about privacy than probably the United States. Yep. And there's a lot of debate now in the news around contact tracing and yep. whether you can do that and whether it's legal. For you to do the work you're doing on the COVID-19, do you need to have that mobile data for of all the different citizens to do what you're doing? Yeah, uh, so, so you're right. I mean, and that's actually, unfortunately, this pandemic, we've seen a lot of, you know, like misinformation and, you know, everything's happening so fast also that, you know, like there's a lot of, you know, like questioning around one way or another. So uh, there's many sources of data, as you can imagine. So, for example, I mean, one of the first apps that we developed with, on COVID-19 was for tracking the symptoms of citizens. So symptoms can also evaluate themselves. And, you know, and, and with that, they were sharing their location. And then the governments were using that for tracking, you know, which areas had more symptoms than others. So, so that's highly, highly private data. Mm-hmm. But it's for a really good purpose. You right. are telling as a citizen to, to the government that, you know, to your government, you know, like one thing, and that helps to unblock the 111, the 911 call like numbers, emergency numbers. So there's a good purpose for these things. And following the pretty good European rules for data uh, privacy, that's all good. But, and we actually did a lot of this. You know, this, this data is used for that. And, you know, like what the European Union call like, call like helps is to, is to provide a framework to do that in a proper way. So that's one thing. The other is, you know, like as you was mentioning, is like now there's a lot of other projects around contact tracing or, you know, like KPIs. I'll, I'll differentiate that. One very typical project that we do is uh, helping governments understand how mobility is getting reduced or is changing over time, right? Mm-hmm. So they impose some rules and they want to know, are people actually following it or are they getting, you know, like right. relaxed, you know, things like that, right? 
So for that, actually, there is a pretty good system for anonymizing and aggregating the data. So I although see. the data might come from individuals, when it gets to, uh, for, to, to be used on our platform, by then we only know that you know, within this city, there's this mass movement. There's no, there's no way to identify who is walking or anything like that. So it's, it gets already anonymized by the way that it's getting used. So, so that data, as long as it's anonymized and aggregated, like most of these data sets are, there's no problem with it. That's a really important uh, point. I don't know why that's not something that's elaborated more in the media. You know, I haven't heard this explained so well as you are doing, that it's uh-huh. at an aggregate level and not at the user level. I think it's a very important point to be it made. Is, it is. But yeah, I mean, you know, in the media, it's sometimes, you know, people are just very fast when they get, you know, to do the, to the news. <laughs> and, you know, like, and there's some things that are more, Obviously, then there's, the, there's another part, which is the contact tracing apps, right? That, you know, you've seen appearing in many places where, you know, like track, if you've been in contact, there's an incredible amount of new concerns around uh, privacy around that. But that's a very different story. We don't actually uh, work on this with that type of data. It has a very specific purpose. You can have a very a different opinion about if you trust the government, if you don't trust your government, you know, like if you trust the private sector, you don't trust it. And that obviously... Maybe in Europe, you know, like we can find societies that trust more their governments and in the United States, you know, like societies that might trust actually the private sector. So every country is kind of like adapting on its own way. There's a really good project by MIT who's actually looking at all the projects around contact tracing and mm-hmm. trying to explain actually how this works. Because that's like one thing people confuse. Like it feels like every contact tracing is done the same way and it's not. Mm-hmm. Every country is doing it in very different ways. China is actually following a much more kind of like a stream way of doing it, which is appropriate there. And, you know, like other countries are banning it entirely. So it really depends from one to another. And there's an incredible number of topics in there. But we don't work on that. We work really with aggregated data that help us to understand how people move. The same, I like to compare it to, we almost, at Carto, you know, with this uh, type of data, what we have is almost a real-time census in USA. Mm. On the census, the government doesn't know it's you. But it's very important information to know what is the demographics of society. The same happens with these cases. It's very important to understand the mobility, how, yeah. how many people move from one region to another. Because if you're going to block one region, you need to know how many are coming from other places. So, you know, as I was going through the introduction and also just researching for this podcast, when I looked at spatial intelligence, Carto's name came up quite a bit. So it looks like you have a very strong brand in this space. And I'm, I'm curious to understand how you went about building this, uh, your brand. Well, first of all, thank you very much. I mean, I'd love to hear that. So uh, kudos to all my marketing team, but also the entire company. Obviously, I, I believe, you know, like brand and, you know, like I represented the company. It's a team effort. Uh, that definitely it is. In our case, I mean, every company has this, every startup has these struggles, finding how to find uh, a way to kind of like spread their name, right, to put it there. In our case, I mean, we, we have one little <laughs> advantage, which I would say is that since we produce maps, uh, who doesn't love maps? So that actually gives us a lot of way, you know, like people really like the content that we, we produce. So that was, that was pretty good. But uh, very also, we did some hacks around that. When we started the product, when we started the company, we looked at, at, the, at the back in the days, you know, like a new trend, which was the concept of data journalism. We had more and more journalists who wanted to call like tell stories with data, right? And maps are a phenomenal way of, you know, telling the stories. So, so we offer our product for free for journalists and, you know, our product started getting used a lot on many different media. 
So that was a pretty good push in terms of, you know, like you get a lot of the brand in a lot of different, many, many different eyes. And there's no magic bullets in this case. So it means just trying to be continuously looking at how you can you know, have an impact you know, like in terms of, you know, talking to the media, but also how do you produce like interesting content. Mm. And all this. There's no magic bullet. It actually just takes time. Mm-hmm. But once you have this mini brand, if you want to say it, it pays off a lot. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you noticed. Yeah, at the end of the day, the crux of why you were able to build your brand was because you had good content. You had engaging yeah. good content and you had the ability for an individual, like a, a journalist, to be able to use your tool and, course, and yeah. map data. I mean, that's really powerful to be able to see it in action. And it's not this complicated stuff that they can just only theoretically understand, but actually play with. I can see how that would have helped a lot. And, and that's actually quite a bit of challenges for a lot of uh, companies and startups on the enterprise software, especially around machine learning and analytics. Sometimes, I mean, like we, we as startups, we go faster innovating actually than what society and, you know, companies or the customers are even kind of capable of coping for, right? So products can be quite difficult. Or in our case, one of our mantras and one of our objectives as a company was what we call democratizing access to location intelligence. We firmly believe that, you know, we can have a more sustainable world if more organizations applied location intelligence to their processes. So we really would like as many people as possible to know how to make maps and how to make this type of analysis. So therefore, I mean, like, we knew that we had to create a product that was possible to be tested without, like, having to become an expert on mm. it, right? So, so this guy, like, having an easy learning curve can mm. be quite a bit of a challenge if your solution is too complex, right? So, so think about like the customer experience, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty important. If you want to have like an impactful brand, you're going to need to let people play with your product. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually is going to require to think about like, you know, the, the onboarding process in, in a different way. So can I, can I use your tool? Like, could I sign up and if I had some data, like map it on your tool? Like, I, or I don't need to be a data scientist to do it. No, I mean, like, uh, obviously, I mean, if you are a data scientist, you will get more, potentially more value out of it. Yeah. But, but we get our tools, you know, like to uh, second grade students. So there's uh, actually, we offer it for free to, to students. And, and there's a lot of, you know, like people making maps. If you, and we have like a wall of, you know, like the top 10 maps and there's maps that you will be surprised. Some these are very simple things. Sometimes can be pretty, pretty complex analysis, but if you want to understand, like recently here in Spain, one of the measurements around lockdown was like, you could only walk uh, one kilometer around your house. That's actually been common in a few countries, all right? So, so we did actually a map to help families and kids, you know, like to find out how far they could go because it was one hour or one kilometer. So, so you have 30 minutes to walk in one direction to go back. So those type of things are easy to make, and it's actually quite fun to, to explain what an isochron is. In fact, actually, I, we've been running a cartoon that I'm very proud of because I, I really love it. They have two kids, very small ones, and we made a series of maps for kids oh. where we explain them things like, you know, like, calculate, you know, draw all the routes from all the capitals in Europe to Rome, right? things like that, right? So just to get them an intro to geography and cartography, and that's been really popular. Oh, wow. Can I access it? I have two kids. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry, sorry but you, yeah. I think I have one here. All right. So this is actually my five-year-old daughter. You know, I just made, uh, I don't know if you can see it, but if you look at it, there's like cells with numbers. Yeah. So colored by numbers, classical type for kids. Yeah. And actually, this is a map representing the richness of mammals around the world, where there's more mammals. 
right? So this is called a coropleth map. So essentially, we're representing richness based on our different color palettes. Uh, I mean, I don't explain that yeah. to my five-year-old, but still love coloring. Uh, it's fun. Nice, nice. I, I definitely will check it out. Please send me I'll, the link. I'll, I'll serve it with you. Okay, so you, you mentioned this a bit in that your, your tool is used even in school. So I want to now turn our focus to a little bit about the go-to-market and commercialization of the product and how you've gone about doing that. Who do you sell primarily to? And what channels have you found most efficient or most successful in getting um, leads that convert to customers? Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, it has evolved a lot over time. So, so we tested many things. So one thing, I mean, is, you know, like making your tool accessible to kind of like kids and so on. And not obviously, we don't expect, you know, to get, you know, like this, uh, my five-year-old to become a, a loyal customer just yet. But... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so in our case, I think, you know, like there's two main kind of like type of personas, but one is the most one, which I would say is like some sort of like a CIO or head of data analytics. Kind of like one journey that we explain our customers is like, okay, well, most organizations understand the importance of being data-driven and data analytics. They use BI tools. They use already analytics for many things, but they're not aware of how, how location it's important to the business. So we have to explain them that. And then, you know, so that's, you know, like a typical journey. So if you have like someone that is res- responsible for, for the analytics inside the company, we can go to that. So those are kind of like the, the customers that buy our product in a way of self-service. They buy it and they might, they might require training, but overall, I mean, they know how to use it straight away and then they just start using it on their own. Uh, we have another type of customer, which is not so, which is not an analytics person, which is more of like a business person, right? So if you think about like someone, on the logistics sector, you know, like that is doing delivery, say like, well, I'm just looking for a solution to reduce the number of miles that you have to drive to deliver the packages, right? We need to optimize this. So that's a business question. That's a business problem. And in those cases, what we do is what we go to market normally is like we sell our product and one of our partners or the customer kind of like, you know, like creates a solution specific for that particular problem using our product. So those are the, the two main things. Now, from where do we find those uh, leads? I mean, like we follow, in our case, I, I was, you were talking about like the brand. The brand for us has been so important. And one of the reasons is because of that lack of knowledge around what location intelligence can enable for an organization. Many of our users do not know. They did not have a budget for location intelligence. Mm-hmm. So we have to explain them what is this about. So a lot of our marketing efforts go towards that type of like content marketing, right? Explaining the value of location intelligence for logistic analytics or how to kind of like enable, you know, like how to better decide where to place your antennas if you're a telco, right? Mm-hmm. Those type of, of content. And that produces quite a bit of leads then that then we convert. So that's one source. The other you mentioned, having in a, a freemium product like we do, it's also a pretty good source of leads. Like people try our product and then they mm-hmm. kind of like come to us we also run events, not now virtual, but you know, like have a very popular event called Spatial Data Science, which is to make help data scientists become spatially aware. Mm-hmm. And that also is a, it's a great source of leads. So, so it's a multi-channel strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but considering that most of our customers, uh, Carto is the first time that they've touched, in a way, location intelligence. Mm-hmm. And in terms of like, you know, when you think about data or BI in that field, Gartner yep. has a huge influence in terms of selling into enterprises. So did you yep. also have to do a lot in terms of uh, educating the Gartners of the world on, on spatial or did they already have a category? How did you sort of manage to 
yeah. educate them and get into their minds so they refer you? Or was that not uh, that sure. important? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we, we like to say, like in this industry, that everybody has to pay your know, like, the contribution to the gods, so, you know, like Gardner and Forrester, yeah? So there is a bit of that, of course. I mean, like, it's changing, obviously, but Gardner and Forrester are obviously important. So we invested on this. Gardner does not have a location intelligence quadrant yet. Forrester does. And so we are quite well representing Forrester. In the case of Gardner, there's a few side papers, you know, that they made that they mentioned different parts. But they don't have one percent. But yeah, that's definitely is, and you know that goes back, you know, to the importance of the the marketing team, you know, and being a fully marketing team, not in the form of brand awareness, but really product marketing, right? Like that, you know, can understand the product deep, so can do good content marketing, not just you know just bluffiness, but actually can actually produce good stories that really show the value, and that then also at the same time can go and educate analysts, that, you know, like then. Obviously, I mean, one of our biggest goals is being, you know, to create, in fact, actually the category, the location intelligence category, which is quite expensive and quite bad. But I think any company that believes is creating a new category, it is one of the things you're going to do. If you're doing a platform yeah. and there's no quadrant, there's no category for it, that's a great chance, actually, that you can define it. And if you define it and you own it, boom, yeah. boom. Yeah. And the product marketers that you hired, had this kind of spatial intelligence data background or were they just smart product marketers, but then they partnered with the product people within the team to create valuable, credible content? That's a great question. And I guess, you know, like that's a lot of companies will find it in the same way, especially in an, on analytics or, you know, if you're, if you're a startup kind of like experiencing social sort of like complex piece of technology, you cannot expect to find good product marketers out there that are going to be experts on geospatial. We just exactly. couldn't. We didn't find them. So, uh, so no. So you can try to find them. You might be able to find them from a competitor, but it's unlikely that you're going to be able to kind of get it. And in full honest, I think you're know, like the best actually is where you get a great product marketer, someone that can think the way, and then you put it together with someone that knows deep about the industry and the product, and then they work together. But, it, but it's even better in the sense like, I mean, I'm obviously a very technical founder, right? As you can see. So that means that I, I can be good or great defining you know, like new products or new ideas around analysis. But I'm not necessarily as good as explaining it in a simple way that will make the message consistent to a uh, to customer. So it's, it's actually quite a bit of a, it's quite a joy to work with them, helping them to explain them like, this is the value in a very complex way. And then getting out of it, saying like, wow, that's really well said. That's actually, that's much easier. Now I understand it much easier. And yeah. so, so, so I think it's a team effort. In this space, not only location intelligence, but everything analytics, expect, you know, to have like multidisciplinary teams and expect, you know, to, to have this level of collaboration, which means educate your engineering team, your product team to consider, you know, like product marketing, just one more part of the whole building process. Right, right. Okay, well, that's really good. I want to now um, switch to global expansion. So you have offices everywhere. I mean, obviously, the, uh, the company yeah. was born in, in uh, Madrid. Madrid, yeah. Madrid, but now you have offices globally. So when did you start your global expansion? At what stage was the company in? And how yeah. did you go to market in the different countries? Yeah, so I'm not sure how unique we are on this because I think I've seen our pattern more and more common. So when we started, we identified that Spain wasn't, although where we were at the time, 
wasn't necessarily big enough market for us to call it Flores as a, as a call it as a company. So we knew from the beginning that we had to move to bigger markets. And Europe has this challenge of, you know, like, although well, it's a single market, the reality it doesn't behave as a single market. So for us, it was very, very clear from the beginning that we need to move to U.S. I think it was actually four months before we uh, launched the product, I moved to New York already. So After uh, your Series we, A? After your Series A? Oh, no, no, even before the Series oh, A. Oh, wow, so okay. On that one. It helped that we had already, remember that we bootstrapped quite a bit. So, and remember that in our case, we had already a few customers, right, that we were testing. And a few of them were from U.S. Mm. So we, we knew we were not starting from scratch, if you want to say. But for us, it was very, very clear. You know, like, it only made sense to think about this business from a global perspective. There was no point on thinking about, like, a, a single market. So software as a service, works on the cloud. It really... Yep. Doesn't matter too much, you know, like where you are in the terms of, you know, like creating an mm-hmm. Now, from a go-to-market perspective, I mean, like, where are you going to spend your dollars or your effort? Uh, for us, at the beginning, it was like, well, New-, New York is pretty big already in itself. And then we kept quite a bit of also, like, capabilities inside inside Spain. And for us, you know, like, that has been, then we kind of, like, expanded from there. But developing, producing from Spain, from Europe now, and then commercializing first in U.S., it's a pretty good strategy because it gives you like quite a bit of comp- competitiveness and from a product engineering perspective, um, not only from a cost uh, perspective, but just access to talent, but like a lot of talent. But then testing your product in US is a much easier market to study than any European mm. market because of size, but also because of risk aversion. I mean, like uh, I always have this story. When we started, it, it was only... I think it was a month after we launched the product, the Wall Street Journal called us because they wanted to have like live maps uh, during the elections. And it was like, wow, that's a pretty risky, because that's a very important yeah. thing for them. It was a very big deal. So they made us, you know, demonstrate that we were you know, not going to go down in any way, right? And they were not easy, but they were willing to actually give it a try, right? And that level of wanting to give it a try in the U.S. is pretty phenomenal. Yeah. So, uh, so I think you know, that helps a lot. So that's how we kind of got it started. Um, then we grew the uh, go-to-market in the U.S. Now, I think around 40% of our revenue comes from the U.S. and 60 is just everywhere else. And when you went world. to U.S., like, okay, so you moved there, but what was yeah. your, like, did you just hire a salesperson first and had them, like, hire the salesperson with the Rolodex first? Mm-hmm. Did you start doing content marketing and generating, like, what was your, how did you, you know, start getting leads in, in, the, in the new yeah. country? Well, so yeah, I guess you had customers, so that probably helped. Yeah, but we have very little. No, no. At the beginning, it's really it's just an adventure in a sense. I think you're like, no. At the beginning, I was doing sales, I was doing marketing, I was doing everything. Everything. Really. I mean, like it's uh, that's. I mean, that's the reality of most companies. Then, I mean, like when we raised our Series A, then it got a little bit more. But but at the beginning, it really is about like you know, like you bet on you know, like on in our case, on content marketing and on your product, and then you start receiving leads. I mean, and you. Uh, maybe in this case, if you're able to go and visit some customers because they happen to be in the same city and so on, you don't bring them to your office because your office back in the days was a non-existent office, but it was like a really dark room back in the days. But you, you just get it started away. I mean, like that's not really that's not US is a pretty is a pretty good company in this case for a car like starting from nothing and growing. In that sense. Mm. It's, a, it's a company. It's a country that gives you a lot of opportunities and you know where people call like measure a lot. What is the value that you bring into them? Instead of, you know, like how. So, so yeah, so it's marketing. And then on, on, 
obviously it's most of the sales at that point also, I have to say, it's, it's indirect sales, right? So people come to you. You don't go to there so easily, right? Mm. So, and we didn't have any direct sales back in the days. At, at okay. the so it took us quite a bit of time to get it started. I, I firmly believe that you first have to call, like, you, you want to see that, you know, there's demand for your product. People want to buy on their own. Right. Before you start kind of like activating a full direct sales, what you're going to need, but, you know, like maybe a little bit you know, like later on the road. You don't want to be just paying for the acquisition of customers. You want to see that there's demand. And then obviously you want to have yeah. a direct go after those customers. I see. Okay. Um, this is your last question. And then we're going to do this rapid fire round. But, right. you know, I've now worked in a number of C, Series C companies. And one yeah. of the things that I found in this stage, and I don't know if it's true for Carto, so maybe you can tell me if it is or not, is there's always a question on, like, should we go broad or should we go deep? In You're finding that you're really mm, hitting the mark in specific verticals and, and the customers are asking you to develop more to, to go in deeper into that use cases yeah. or, or stay broad. So is it more market share or wallet share is something yeah. that I found in Series C companies as uh, one of the things that they grapple with. I'm curious, is that true for Carto? And if it is, you know, how are you dealing with it? Yeah, yeah, it is to a certain extent. I mean, there's always, you know, like this question around it, especially if you're kind of like working as a platform, like in our case, right. so, you know, like you can be used for many different things. There's always going to have this tension of like stay, you know, generic, go after, you know, one single. In our case, we, we've had the, the lack of the course, I don't know, of, you know, pretty, being pretty horizontal in the sense like we have like quite a bit of, you know, like presence in many different verticals. We like to say that at the end of the day, everything happens somewhere. So therefore, almost every industry, in a way, can like apply location intelligence. So in a way, there's no or never been you know, like one particular sector where you say like, whoa, look at that. Just kidding. Which in some cases could have happened. We pre- also, we prevented it. Like, for example, in our space, and that might be a good advice at the beginning. You know, like it depends on what type of company you want to make. But in our case, there was this temptation always on to actually go and work for the military and intelligence industry. Why? Because they're like heavy customers of, you know, like location intelligence. And they will ask you for very verticalized and like you said, like go very, very deep. And you can actually make a lot of money on that space. But that will come at the cost of not being, you know, like a, a, a full platform, right? And, you know, like will prevent, you know, growth in the future or in our case, even, you know, fulfill our vision as a company, right? So, so you, you have to be diligent around this. In our case, we still believe, you know, like that there's quite a bit of, you know, like value on being horizontal and we feel quite uh, comfortable doing, doing that. We're still on that journey. And then there's other things that helps. We didn't talk about it, but at Carto, we do have a partners network, right? So those are uh, companies that partner with us and they develop solutions on top of our platform. Mm. That alleviates a lot, these requirements. We do have now professional services companies that specialize on creating solutions for specific markets using Carto. And that, you know, has helped us a lot in that case. When did you do that? When did you open it up so it's an open platform where people can build on top of your platform? I think probably we were a little bit early when we did it. I think we were, I mean, like looking back, I mean, like I'm, I'm very proud I'm, of our partners. I'm, I'm very happy to work with them. But, you know, it was, it was pretty early in the journey. It was like 2015. So it wasn't, you know, that much after. But the reason for it is that we had a lot of pressure from customers that needed, you know, like wanted to, build things on top of our products and, and needed support for that. That's one thing. 
And the other is like, maybe it's in our industry, but there's a lot of like companies providing professional services on top of what we call geospatial tools. I so see. it wasn't that hard in a way for us to make it. Because um, there was already, there were a lot of professional services companies that yes, used yes. location yes. data. So think about, yeah, like for example, think about like, uh, there's a lot of companies that offer Google Maps, uh, that right. they're like partners with Google Maps. So it, that actually was the first way that we went after. We looked at companies that were partners with Google Maps and we say, we knew that we had a complementary product to, to what they were offering. So we knew that there was going to be a match, right? So that has helped quite a bit on, on that facilitation, you know, about uh, do we go deep, do we go? But it's a continuous tension. And, and I don't know. I mean, like it's, uh, there's no like right or wrong on that discussion. It really depends on the, your organization and where you stand and what is your vision, what type of company you want to do. In our case, we've always knew that we wanted to make location tenures available for anybody. And that actually means being quite horizontal and, you know, just trying to make it, you know, accessible to as many people as possible. One other thing that I noticed is that you acquired two companies. Yep. When, and, and again, that to me was quite surprising because in the growth phase, you got this, uh, in, you know, influx of money probably after Series B and you have to grow and make these numbers. I don't know too many companies that would have decided to necessarily acquire. A lot of them struggle with that decision too, to build it themselves versus acquiring. Why did you do that? Would you say that was the right strategy for you? And any advice for startups that have this hole in their product, yeah. what should they do? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, again, in this case, there's no like right or wrong. So you have to really look at it. It's important to, to note that most acquisitions actually do not perform pretty particularly well, but there's many different type of acquisitions, right? In our case, you got it right. I mean, there were we essentially kind of like went and you know, like acquired two companies because we saw holes on our of product offering or we saw opportunities. So let me actually explain. So the first one, the first company that we acquired was uh, a company that was specialized on mapping, visualization technology around maps for mobile. And we did not have a mobile team. Mm. So we, we happened, again, that actually talks about like the, the actual uh, value of having a partners network like we had mm. was that we actually were working with that company before we acquired them. Mm. So we, we didn't, we were not looking for companies. So we have worked with them. We knew about them. They knew our product. We knew the product they had. We've actually called like integrating in a few customers. So, so there was a story. So, and we knew the people. So that makes it really much, much easier later to take a decision like this, right? So uh, it was a very small team. It was only four per person. So it was, uh, they had like this SDK that we wanted, but now it's our mobile SDK. And um, yeah, I mean like, so I think from a product perspective and so on, that wor worked well. We actually, because of that, we opened an office in Estonia that later mm. we ended up closing. The cultural car, like, and you know, how do integration of two companies, that's a different story. It can actually be for another entire talk. So you have to watch out for it making business well together, making the product compatible is one thing, you know, like ensuring, you know, that all the things are going to kind of like connect well and so on. It's something that you have to evaluate really bad. Yeah. Really well. The second one was a much bigger one. We acquired it actually a year ago. I think it was exactly a year ago. It was a, a company in Spain, Seville. And it was uh, around 40 people at the time. And so that was a much, much bigger one. In that case, again, it was one of our partners. And in our case, we saw we did not have a professional services arm inside Cartoon, so we always rely on those parts. But some of our customers really wanted us to work with them on some strategic project, 
and that and, and we didn't have you know like that team to actually create those professional services for them. That's one thing. Then the other, this company had a tremendous expertise on you know like on using our platform and working with our customers to kind mm. of deliver custom solution. So. In both uh, cases, you had a lot of experience. The CTO of uh, the CTO of that company now is the CTO of Carto. So there was a lot yeah. of you know like history on there that okay. we knew already. So if you see clear and you see the gaps and so on, yeah, there's a lot of opportunities to call kind of like speed up your journey. Yeah. But you know, like just acquiring because you just raise money and you know and, uh, that's very very rarely uh, a success. So you just have to see very very clear. Yep. You need to see the gap. You need to know the team, especially for the first ones, I guess. And obviously, when you have an M&A department, and so on, it's a different thing. But in a company in a small state, there is journeys also like, and also for, for, for companies of Series B, you might also want to consider, you know, like in some cases, you know, like merging with other company that is in a, a just, you know, like it's compatible to your product and they might be struggling or, or you know, together you can say like, hey, together we actually do better. And you can actually work with the founders and, and those are the best ones. Mm. So, so you just have to be creative and, and you just have to know that it's possible. And if you know it's possible and you know how to spot the possibilities, of course, you do need to have a good operations person and all these things. Right? Then it opens a ton of possibilities. So it's definitely a very, I would recommend you know, people to, to look at that possibility too. Okay. Okay, great. I, I could probably go on for another hour, but I'm going to get into this rapid fire round where I'm just going to ask go, some go. questions, hopefully. What's your favorite business book or the last business book you read and what do you like about it? Hmm. Well, I mean, one that obviously had a big impact and for a lot of companies with us is, you know, like Crossing the Chasm. It was one of the most important books I think I've read. So for <laughs> anybody that is working in this industry, definitely you need to know about that. Okay. And um, if you didn't have to work for money, would you, what would you do? Would you still be doing this or something else? No, I'm pretty passionate about what I do. I mean, like you have to say like, uh, you know, like some of the, some of our first customers at the beginning when we started still use us for things like deforestation analysis and, you know, wow. like tracking, um, you know, climate change. If there was something else I could do, it would be just working in, in an environmental organization using my work product. Oh, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure uh, a lot of environmental organizations would love to have someone with your background <laughs> and expertise. What's your favorite European city? And in that European city, what's like the must-do thing you would recommend? Well, for me, I have to say it's Berlin. Berlin. I live in Berlin for three years, so I'm totally in love with it. I love the city, so it's... Uh, really? Uh, okay. Yeah. I love Berlin. So uh, Berlin is a must. And things to, to do, I mean, I mean, like, there's a lot of things to do. Go out, have fun. You know, like I had it when I, when I was there, when that's Erasmus. But also I worked there at the Botanical Garden as a scientist. So check out the Botanical Garden in Berlin. It's pretty nice. Nice. Well, I learned something new. Berlin is on my list of places to go. Whoever has gone there has said really good things about, about it. So I'm looking forward okay. to going there. Well, Javier... Thank you so much for being on my show. I found it extremely interesting and I learned a lot. So I hope that my audience learned as much. Thank you very much again. Thanks to you.